What the American companies say is we do not need or want to be in the renewable energy business. It would be a waste of money. If we think that in order to reduce emissions in general, the world needs more renewable energy, then absolutely fine. You know, we're not going to disagree with that. What we would disagree with is the suggestion that we are the right people to provide that renewable energy. We should stick to what we know, which is oil and gas. It's fascinating to watch the world's oil majors on this winding path toward recognition that their businesses are going to fundamentally change as we decarbonize the global economy and simultaneously trying to position themselves to be successful in that decarbonized world. Can they do it? This is The Interchange. I'm Shale Khan. I'm a partner at the venture capital firm Energy Impact Partners. Welcome. This week, I had a great conversation with Ed Crooks. Ed has been on the show before. He's the vice chairman for the Americas at Wood McKenzie. He's an expert on all things like high-level energy transition, but he's also close with uh, all the oil and gas super majors and has a good beat on how they're thinking about the world. In some ways, for me, many of the large oil and gas companies are this, there's like a veil that is hard to see behind. You know, you can see all their public announcements and their big long-term scenarios and so on, but it's really hard to figure out from the outside what's actually going on inside. And and given the the magnitude of the resources that they can deploy, like what's ac- how much are those resources actually being deployed and toward where? And it's been interesting to watch how they transition their rhetoric and their actions over time. As I talked about with Ed, there has always been a clear divide across the Atlantic where European oil and gas super majors were much quicker to acknowledge climate change and to start to make real meaningful pledges and then investments in in new energy technologies. The American oil and gas companies have been slower but are starting to transition, how they talk about it as well. It's not unrelated to the pressures that they feel from their stakeholders, which are ranging from their employees to, I think, probably more importantly for them, their investors and governments with whom they work. And so all this stuff is tied in together. And it, in my mind, is going to be one of the most influential factors in determining how quickly this transition occurs and exactly where all the big investment dollars go because every one of these companies has a budget that dwarfs basically every company that is in the new energy space. So I like to check in with Ed periodically to you know act as our uh, super major whisperer and this conversation did not disappoint. So with no further ado, my conversation with Ed Crooks. Ed, welcome. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Uh, so we're going to talk about a bunch of fun things. We're going to check in on the oil and gas super majors and what they're doing in the energy transition. We're going to talk about what it would take to reach 1.5 degrees C from a global warming perspective. We're going to talk about the outlook for carbon prices. But first, um, last time you were on this show was about a year ago. It was a little less than a year ago. And it was right in the wake of when we had had this historic event in the oil markets where the price of West Texas Intermediate crude went negative briefly. So we're one year hence from that. Can you give us the quick what has happened in oil markets since then? 
Yeah, so that was a really crazy, crazy time, wasn't it? That was really kind of uh, profoundly abnormal conditions in the oil market to have prices going negative. And essentially, since what then what happened is that uh, normal service was resumed, um, prices were, became positive and stayed positive again, stayed pretty subdued really through most of 2020. And then as you got towards the end of the year, really started picking up quite strongly. And um, we were about at about $40 a barrel for Brent crude in November. And as optimism about the vaccines started to grow, it became clear that the vaccines were working and that they would be available and that there was growing hope that the world would be able to return to normal, maybe this year, maybe the year after, but definitely at some point. Um, that really kind of stimulated expectations that economic activity is going to pick up and therefore demand for oil was going to pick up. And that started oil prices on their upward trajectory. We also had some hope for uh, some help from the OPEC plus group, Saudi Arabia and Russia. They continued to constrain supplies. Saudi Arabia made a um, voluntary um, uh, cut in its own output uh, early in, in the, this year. Effect of all that was to drive oil prices higher. Brent crude went above seventy dollars a barrel um, briefly earlier this month. So really, you know, um, a very good level by not just by the standards of the past year, but by the standards of the past few years. Um, and I think then what happened is people thought, well, hang on, maybe it's got kind of a bit ahead of itself here. Perhaps this is a little bit overbought. And since then, it's fallen back pretty sharply. And we've had some pretty um, steep declines just in the past couple of weeks in oil. And uh, it's down again today. Brent crude's more like $60 now than $70. But still, that's not at all a bad price. That's definitely um, a price above what a lot of the industry is banking on, given how much of the oil industry um, has cut its costs very aggressively in the past few years. That's a price that's going to mean that a lot of oil companies are able to make quite a lot of money. Profitability and cash flow can be pretty good if prices are sustained at around $60. So I think when you think back to where we were um, this time last year, and certainly to where we were when, when oil prices went negative at the time of that crisis, I think the oil industry is in a much better position now than seemed likely then. So that's maybe a good segue toward the conversation that we want to have about how the oil companies are approaching climate change and the energy transition today. But so it sounds like what you're saying, though, is that over the past year, they went through a bit of turmoil, as many companies in many sectors did when COVID hit, and in their case, when oil prices crashed. But then they, as they've recovered, they're, they actually turn out to be a little bit more flush than they expected. Do we have any indications at this point as to what they're doing with the excess cash that they find themselves with? Yeah, so they're being very clear that the first thing they need to do is reward shareholders. Um, the oil industry has been a pretty terrible place to be an investor for a decade and more. And management teams are very aware of that. And they know they need to do more to reward shareholders. And so you're seeing um, a lot of focus on dividends. Companies that haven't been paying dividends are starting to pay dividends. Companies that have cut their dividends are talking about putting their dividends back up. Companies that have not cut their dividends are talking about being absolutely sure that they can maintain their dividend and increase it in the future. There's also some talk um, possibly about share buybacks and some companies also thinking about that. Um Crucial thing being that all these kind of um, ways to return cash to shareholders are being prioritised over investing money back into the core business for growth. 
it's very clear that among investors in general, there is not a huge appetite for oil companies to be ploughing large amounts of capital back into the core business in order to uh, grow production. I think a couple of things are going on there. One is that, um, as I say, results uh, from that strategy over the past 10 years have not been good. And the other thing is that investors are starting to think about the energy, energy transition. They're starting to think about the long-term outlook for oil demand. And they're thinking, do they really want companies to be spending a lot of money developing assets that are potentially going to be stranded or uneconomic or not hugely profitable at some point down the line? And they're saying, no, we don't want you to do that. Yeah. I mean, that was one of the other things that happened between the last time that we talked and now, which was this sort of iconic moment when the largest US-based energy company by market cap became NextEra Energy for the first time, surpassing ExxonMobil. NextEra, of course, being the utility company that's the largest owner and operator of wind and solar in the country. Uh, their share price has been on a pure upward trajectory where Exxon's has been generally on, an, on a downward one. I think it's interesting. I mean, it, you're describing an interesting transition from the perspective of investors in oil companies who are, I think, actually really crucial players that often don't get the attention they deserve in thinking about how the energy transition is going to play out. Because obviously, you know, to some degree, the large integrated oil companies respond to what their investors want them to do, or at least it's easier to do so. And so if their investors are pushing them to plow more capital into more exploration, they're more likely to do that. But it's interesting that it sounds like what you're saying is that their investors are waking up increasingly to the risk posed by new exploration, things like that, because there may be stranded assets caused by decarbonization, but not necessarily yet at the point where they're they're pushing the oil companies to plow their excess cash into new energy type projects, right? They're um, asking for dividends, well, like well, pay us off. Yes and no, in that I think what I would say is I would draw a very strong contrast between what's happening in the United States and what's happening in Europe. And what you've seen with the European oil companies is, is exactly what you're talking about, that certainly um, investors want uh, oil companies to prioritize dividends and returns to shareholders are important to them, but also they are demanding investment into new energies. And so that's that's the really been the huge change. And I mean, it's been very striking in a sense that, you know, over the past year or so, the, there's been, you know, the world has been in an urgent, immediate crisis because of the pandemic. But European oil companies have been very much looking past where the industry is right now, and looking to the long term future. And so we've seen really all of the big European oil companies have set targets for net zero emissions by 2050. You've seen that from BP, Shell, Total, Equinor, um, any of Italy most recently. Um, and that's under pressure from shareholders. That is what shareholders want them to do. Shareholders have been calling for these companies to become Paris compliant, to um, align themselves with a trajectory for global greenhouse gas emissions that is consonant with the goal of the, the Paris Agreement to keep the rise in global temperatures to well below two degrees centigrade. Um, and so, as I say, they've set these long-term goals and ambitions. They call them goals and ambitions rather than targets. And perhaps we can get into the, the terminology of that, but it's, it's kind of important that, in other words, these are not exactly hard and fast commitments. These are 
um, places they would like to get to. And of course, this is going to be long beyond um, the span of, of the management teams that are currently there at the moment. You know, um, chief executives will be gone. All the boards will be gone by 2050. So the kind of the current individuals are not going to be the ones that will be held to account on whether or not they've um, uh, met these goals. But anyway, point being, um, investors want them to start moving in that direction. And part of that movement has been a big uh, diversification away from oil and gas. Well, so far, actually, you know, kind of a modest diversification away from gas, but what is going to be a very big diversification away from oil and gas, where they're going to put a large amount of their capital. And I mean, you sometimes, some of the companies are thinking about sort of maybe a third of their capital investment, maybe a half, you know, on that order of magnitude, but very large sums to go into new energies, to go into renewables, to go into EV charging, to go into storage, um, to go into hydrogen and so on. So one of the things that has always been a barrier, uh, or at least there's been a stated barrier to these large oil companies becoming more aggressive in the world of renewables or electricity in general is the expected returns have been lower, right? The expected return on investment of a new exploration for them might be in the mid-teens, ultimately, whereas they were seeing returns on, you know, if they were to build offshore wind or solar or something like that um, in the, you know, 8 to 10% kind of a range. Is it that that equation has changed for them, either because returns on traditional investments for them have declined or returns on the new stuff have increased? Or is it that they just have no alternative and have come to recognize that? So I think it's a bit of both. I certainly think... Um, they have no alternative, uh, as I say, just given the demands of investors, the demands of governments, the demands of the public, just the whole kind of mood of um, civil society, all stakeholders in Europe, the European IOCs really have had, the international oil companies, they really haven't had any alternative but to do what they're doing. What they say is, it is possible to do this, it is possible to decarbonize, to move towards renewable energy, while addressing that point um, you raise about rates of return. Um, and they say they can still earn decent rates of return, even in industries that are typically uh, lower return than oil and gas. And I mean, they absolutely acknowledge it's a problem. They say, yeah, that's clearly an issue. As you say, it's been a, a deterrent until now. I guess you would say, you know, a couple of, of points about that. One is that although um, returns in oil and gas historically have been higher, they have been more volatile. Certainly, you're tied to commodity prices. And, you know, there's definitely um, the returns are riskier there. Um, and Although kind of looking through the cycle, you might say returns will be higher in general. They've not been at all good in the past decade or so. And that's definitely contributed, I think, to a mood among investors to say, we're not so desperate for these oil and gas companies to stick to their core oil and gas businesses. And then the other thing I think is to say, conversely, on the uh, the power side and renewable energy, um, if, uh, if you look at those returns, often they are more stable. You've got a feed-in tariff. You're selling into some kind of regulated market. So you've got a, a more reliable um, uh, cash flow there. And you can basically um, uh, leverage that up. And so, you know, what you've been seeing companies talking about, and this is something BP talks about quite a bit, for instance, is given the strength of its balance sheet, you know, it's got a uh, A-rated um, balance sheet. 
um, it can use debt to leverage up the returns on stable power and renewables businesses and get them, it says, to the 8% to 10% range. That's that's what BP talks about as its target for the returns in its power and renewables business. So, as you say, not probably as high as the mid-teens and upwards returns that it might have got from oil and gas, but A, more stable, and B, it's what investors want them to do. And so it's kind of, you know, I mean, there are, you know, you can, uh, yeah, they have to execute this. And there's a, you know, a lot of objections you can raise in terms of, um, worrying about whether they're actually going to be able to get there. Um, but that's the strategy. That's what they're pitching. And that's what they say they can do in terms of being able to achieve good returns for shareholders while decarbonizing the business. So it's been true for a while that the European super majors are more progressive when it comes to, or more aggressive when it comes to the energy transition than their uh, colleagues across the pond here in North America. But I, I do want to talk about the the U.S.-based uh, large oil companies, Exxon, Chevron, Occidental, and so on. Where are they at in this transformation today? So it, it's been very interesting um, among the U.S. companies because they are clearly also moving in that same direction towards decarbonization. There's a lot more talk about the need to cut carbon emissions. There's a lot more talk about the Paris Agreement and, and the implications of that for their businesses. And we've even seen a few US oil companies um, starting to set targets for net zero emissions. We've had that from ConocoPhillips, and we've had that from Occidental Petroleum. And at the moment, um, ConocoPhillips' target is just for scope one and two emissions. So in other words, only from its own operations and from the energy that it buys. And clearly, if you're an oil and gas company, a big part of your, your total carbon footprint is, is the scope three emissions. It's, it's the, uh, the use of the products that you sell. And so, you know, arguably that's a pretty, um, um, you know, it's a very tightly, uh, circumscribed, tightly defined target to only be looking at scope one, two emissions. But still, it's something. It's setting a net zero target. And that's that's a big move, even from where the US industry was just a few years ago. Um, and if you look at the investor presentations, if you look at what um, Chevron and Exxon have been talking about in their recent presentations to, um, to analysts and to investors, they talk a lot more about carbon. If you just, you know, look at the, the frequency with which the word carbon crops up, it, it turned up a lot more this year than it did last year and so on. So definitely they are taking this on, on board and, uh, acknowledging the need to cut emissions. The crucial difference still at the moment between the US industry and the European industry is what the, the what is what the American companies say is we do not need or want to be in the renewable energy business. It's just something we're not really good at. As you say, they raise um, that issue about returns being lower that we've been talking about. They say it's just fundamentally a very different business to be a provider of power to a grid um, compared to exploring, developing, producing refining and marketing oil and gas, they'd say those are just, um, as I say, very different businesses, different skill sets, different capital structures required, um, different uh, risk profiles, all of that. 
which means that there is absolutely no competitive advantage, they argue, in them getting into those businesses. They say, you know, we could absolutely develop um, a renewable energy business, but it would be a waste of money. If we think that, you know, for the, for the, um, uh, to meet the Paris goals, in order to reduce emissions in general, the world needs more renewable energy, then absolutely fine. You know, we're not going to disagree with that. What we would disagree with is the suggestion that we are the right people to provide that renewable energy. We should stick to what we know, which is oil and gas. Right. It's it's an it's an interesting line they're trying to walk there. I mean, there's probably some they, they may be right, in fact, that they don't have any inherent advantage in the renewable energy world. On the other hand, if they're acknowledging that this transition is coming and that they need to be a part of it in some way or another, they got to figure out what their business is going to be in the future if it's not going to be what it currently is. I thought there was an interesting statement that um, the CEO of Occidental Petroleum made a couple of months ago, I think at a conference or something like that. She said that eventually Occidental will become a, quote, carbon management company. And I wonder whether, it, it, you know... The U.S. oil majors are looking at a couple of the areas in what looks likely to be the suite of technologies that are going to dominate in a, a decarbonized world and looking at the ones that look most like what they're already doing in oil and gas and maybe petrochemicals and saying those are the things we need to be involved in. So it might be hydrogen, for example, which you know, apart from producing it using renewable energy, once you have it, you're shipping around a gas or a liquid version of hydrogen. That's kind of familiar to them. It might be carbon as well, where, you know, if we're going to develop a carbon economy with a carbon infrastructure and pipelines and all that kind of stuff, again, looks relatively similar. So is it that they're, you know, broadly in the US, the companies are saying, let's tackle those kinds of problems and skip over the stuff that doesn't look like what we do now? Or do they just have no clear vision of what their business looks like when it's decarbonized. No, no, no. It, it, yeah, it, it's definitely the former, as you say. And I think I think you've you've described it very well. And I think that's a nice um, turn of phrase that from, from Vicky Hollibur, Occidental Petroleum, talking about being a carbon management company. I think obviously you could argue that um, all oil and gas companies are carbon management companies, you know. <laughs> Arguably, uh, they don't manage it very well at the moment. Well, yeah. well uh, yeah, yeah, I guess I guess not. But no, no, but, you know, they are, they are, um, handling hydrocarbons, they are understanding hydrocarbons, they are getting out of getting them out of the ground, they are processing them in, in a variety of different ways, and then they're selling them to people. Um, as you say, the, the crucial kind of missing step, you could argue, is what happens at the end of that process. But up until that, they are extremely um, knowledgeable and skilled. They have enormous expertise, great technology for managing uh, carbon uh, compounds, you know, right the way down the value chain. And so, uh, as you say, I think that's that's the kind of the very clear um, understanding of these companies, which is that um, when you're thinking about where is your real competitive advantage, if you as an oil and gas company are going to get involved in decarbonisation, which you accept that you are going to have to because that's the way the world is going, um, where can you really add value? And as you say, it's in that um, questions of managing carbon and carbon compounds. It's in management of, of flows of gases. It's in uh, industrial processes, as you say, pipelines, storage, and so on. And so that's um, absolutely what Occidental Petroleum are talking about. Occidental Petroleum have a particular angle here, which is they are one of the leaders in the world, in particular, the leader in the United States in um, 
using carbon dioxide for enhanced oil recovery. I don't know if you know about this technology, but basically, you know, if you're trying to squeeze more oil out of a reservoir, um, you know, first it just comes out by itself, then you can start to pump it out. When the pumps start becoming ineffective, you can inject water uh, into the reservoir to squeeze the oil out. And then finally, after that, you can do what's called tertiary recovery, which is um, using carbon dioxide pumped into the reservoir um, to, to get the oil out. And that is something that Occidental Petroleum is a, is a real expert in. They have decades of experience of that. And so they've been trying various ways to um, turn that into a bigger business. And they hope that over time, that's going to be a way that essentially you can kind of close the loop and you, know, you will be able to store in the ground more carbon dioxide than is being released from the oil that you get out of the ground when it's burnt as fuel or whatever. Right. Oxy has a big partnership um, with a company called Carbon Engineering, which is one of the early leaders in direct air capture, where they're setting up a bunch of projects that are going to be direct air capture of CO2 uh, to enhanced oil recovery. Oxy presumably takes on the enhanced oil recovery part and carbon engineering takes on the the direct air capture part. So yeah, I can see how that's part of a vision. It doesn't to me um reflect like a holistic picture of this is our business, this is our business under decarbonization quite yet. I feel like I'm getting a clearer picture of that, or at least the European oil companies appear to be taking more shots on goal around that, right? They're spreading their bets around a bunch of different technologies. They're getting into EV charging. They're getting into offshore renewables. They're getting into a bunch of other things. Uh, whereas the American companies, you know, there, there's a couple of examples, but it seems like they're earlier, they're, they're in the discussion part of the journey more than they are in the action part of the journey at the moment. Yeah, that is true. And that's partly because carbon capture and storage is still a relatively nascent technology. Obviously, you know, the, the fundamentals of the technology are well understood, well established, but in terms of rolling it out at scale, you know, hasn't really happened yet. We still have, you know, a lot of pilot pro projects basically scattered around the world. I mean, you know, quite a few pilot projects even in North America, but it is not a technology that's commercially deployed at scale, as you say. And so that, and, you know, and it being deployed at scale is some way down the road and basically depends on the right regulatory framework being put in place and having a price on carbon that makes it reliably economically viable to do that. And we're not yet there. Not, okay, not there well, yet. That's, a, that's a good segue. We're going to talk about a price on carbon in a minute. But first, I want to talk a little bit about um, a 1.5C world and what it would take. You've been doing a bunch of work on this with Mackenzie. He's done a bunch of modeling on what it would take to to achieve a maximum global warming of 1.5 degrees centigrade. I guess first, maybe just position us like why why do we talk about 1.5 degrees C? Is it even within the realm of possibility at this point? And then we can talk a little bit about what it would take to get there. Why do we talk about 1.5C? Answer, because it's there in the Paris Agreement. If you remember, the Paris Agreement has a slightly odd kind of dual goal where it says that um, the world is agreeing to, signatures to the Paris Agreement are agreeing to keep the rise in global temperatures to well below uh, 2 degrees centigrade, but they should also pursue efforts to keep uh, the rise in global temperatures to just 1.5 degrees centigrade. And um, obviously, you could argue on a kind of a century-long timescale, because we're talking about by the end of the century, um, these are fairly fine distinctions. And, you know, climate science is not exact enough to be able to kind of 
um, make a precise call between 1.7 and 1.5 degrees in 80 years' time in terms of, you know, what that implies. But it's still, you know, and also um, there is not uh, enough certainty in climate science to kind of say that everything's going to be fine if we limit the rise uh, in temperatures to 1.5 degrees, but it'll be terrible if it's 1.7. You know, all of these things, um, there is a kind of a sliding scale of harms that escalate as temperatures rise. The limits are chosen politically, more or less arbitrarily. I mean, it's a bit unfair to say arbitrarily. They're chosen to a degree arbitrarily in terms of what politicians think might be acceptable and in terms of what people think is going to be um, a limit that will restrict the damage done by climate change to an acceptable level. So that's why you get to to 1.5 degrees as this kind of aspirational goal as being something where you can't say there'll be no harm from climate change at that level, but it would be minimised and it, it is certainly clear that there'll be less damage from climate change at 1.5 degrees than there will be at 2 degrees or at 2.5 or 3, you know, on the scale. So that's why it's there. That's why a lot of people are talking about it. It is something that um, a lot of governments talk about. It is something which increasingly is coming into the discussion again uh, among investors. And if you, if you um, listen to a lot of investors, particularly in Europe, they're starting to say, well, yeah, okay, you're talking about uh, a two-degree scenario, a two-degree world, which is something that you know, a lot of companies are doing now. Actually, that's not good enough. We'd like to talk about a 1.5-degree world because that's really what we think is necessary. And that, that is, as I say, the, the kind of, you know, the, the whatever, the, the, the best practice, the... Um, the highest aspirational goal of the Paris Agreement. Sorry, you were going to say. Well, yeah, so that's a good way to frame, I guess, my core question, which is I think we have a, you know, as a heuristic, we have a pretty decent sense of what a two, what achieving a two degree scenario looks like. Obviously, there's a ton of nuance to it, but you know, at the high level, I think, I think it's it's reasonably well understood. What I'm curious about is what what would distinguish what are, what are the actions that we would have to take, at least what actions do we think we would have to take. To achieve 1.5 degrees C, be above and beyond what we would have to do to limit warming to two degrees. Yeah, ab- absolutely. I mean, so, uh, and that's where um, it gets really interesting, I think, and that's where you begin to see just how difficult it is actually to put the world on a path for just 1.5 degrees of warming. It is, it's a very, very demanding thing. And it, I mean, interestingly, as you say, so we've been looking at this at Wood McKenzie. I noticed uh, IRENA, you know, the International Renewable Energy Agency, they also came out with their version of a 1.5 degree world um, last week, which is also um, well worth a look if people want to look that up. And so you, know, just, you just get a sense that, for instance, you know, one of the things they talk about is, I think it's by 2050, is their deadline, 90% of all power in the world should be uh, renewable. So, um, I mean, firstly, that's just a huge change. You imagine absolutely transforming the world's power system from, you know, whatever out at the moment, you know. Um, I don't even know what the number is, but, you know, anyway. It's a huge change to transform the world's power system to get to 90% renewable uh, energy by 2050 in just 30 years' time. It is also something which we don't really know how to do, right? I mean, there is, you know, um, I think probably among people that look at this, 
there is broad consensus that an 80% renewable energy uh, power system is absolutely doable, but that remaining 20% gets really hard. Um, things like problems with um, places where it's kind of dark and cold and still for weeks on end, parts of the Northern Hemisphere and so on. Um, issues with grid stability. Um, issues with, you know, increased demand placed by you know, electric vehicles and electric heating and so on. Anyway, you know, so... That, that's just one kind of example, but a 90% renewable power system is a very, very challenging thing to get to. Um, I mean, and sorry, just to kind of follow through on thought that and type back to, to Wood Mackenzie's work. So, so we have a much lower thing in our modeling. We have more like a, I think a 70% renewable, um, power system by 2050, um, which seems much more doable actually and i think in principle that's absolutely achievable it's still a huge change from where we are now but it's definitely achievable and then how do you make the numbers add up well answer you need a lot of carbon capture and you need negative emissions technologies as well and so you need some direct air capture you need um uh, bioenergy with carbon capture to be fairly significant you need um the use of forestry and other you know, plant-based um, sequestration and you need a good chunk of carbon capture and storage from industrial processes and from power generation all of that again is sort of you know that stuff we know how to do in principle we do not have it at the moment at large scale at anything like the scale that's needed you know all of those technologies would be much much would need to be much much bigger than they are today and um to make them economic it would clearly need a carbon price much higher than the carbon prices that are prevailing in the world today i mean i think the the average carbon price in places that price carbon i think if you um you know uh, uh take a a weighted average, average carbon price around the world is about $18 a tonne today. 18. 18.18. Yeah. Yep. And, and it, you know, and it varies a lot. And it's, um, I think the, the highest price is, um, is over 100, I think, or certainly, you know, in, in the region of 100 in Sweden, and then down to, you know, just a few cents in some other places. But um, on our calculations, you would need an average carbon price worldwide of about $150 a tonne to um, get to that 1.5 degree world. So it's a big change. It's a very, very different world from where we are now. And you have to do it quickly. You have to do that. You have to get there in just three decades. Well, so that's, uh, that's a good way for us to talk about carbon pricing and particularly in the US, right? We had no, we had virtually zero prospects for getting a price on carbon uh, until relatively recently when we had an election in the U.S. and we have a new administration that, uh, you know, appears to be taking climate change pretty seriously as pursuing this whole of government approach um, and infusing climate change into all sorts of different agencies. But as you say, if we're keeping our eyes on the prize and the prize is either 1.5 degrees C or 2 degrees C globally, then obviously the single biggest thing that the government could do is institute a price on carbon. So we're in the early days of the Biden administration still, but from what we can tell reading the tea leaves today, what do you think the the outlook is for any where you know we're not talking about $150 a ton yet. Let's start with 
any price on carbon in the US. I have to say, I don't think the omens are good. I mean, it's very interesting. Um, you know, the politics of it are fascinating in that we're seeing some slightly odd kind of coalitions and uh, alliances forming both uh, for and against pricing carbon. So there is definitely a there is a strain of thought in the Republican Party and in American business that favours a price on carbon. And you see a lot of big companies signing up to that. And you see you know the big names in the oil industry, Exxon Mobil, and others um, signing up to a price on carbon. And then you have quite a few people in the environmental movement who are opposing it. And you'll find people saying it's a kind of you, know, you shouldn't be able to buy your way out of pollution, and it's uh, the kind of you know the wrong. Uh, the wrong route to go down, and the government should just be regulating to ban um, polluting activities, activities that lead, lead to carbon emissions, not um, putting a price on them. And so that, I think, creates a slightly odd debate. And I think it's going to be hard then to build a coalition in Washington to actually get something like that agreed. I think also, given where we are with the state of the economy, given still the terrible position of the labour market in this country, um, anything that looks like it's going to be a threat to the economy, anything that looks like it might jeopardise employment or could be portrayed as a threat to employment, it's going to be very hard to get through. You know, carbon prices, if they look like they're going to boost the price of gasoline, they're going to boost the price of natural gas that uh, people use in their homes, um, that's clearly going to be unpopular. There's going to be a big job would have to be done to sell that to the public. Um, given how frequently elections come around, you know, everyone's already starting to think about the 2022 midterms and, and what those might mean and, uh, you know, um, what the Democrats' chances, uh, you know, prospects are there and whether they can hang on to control of the House and the Senate as they have at the moment. Um Put all that together, it seems to me the politics for getting a carbon price to move are very, very difficult. And I think it's probably suggestive that you don't really hear anything out of the administration at the moment. There's not a, a, a whisper, a breath of them being interested in that. Um, I don't think also, and I, I would need to check this, but I believe it to be the case that we haven't seen in the new Congress any carbon pricing legislation put forward. Obviously, there have been quite a few bills. There's about eight or nine bills, I think, that have circulated with varying but broadly similar proposals for um, carbon pricing. The, the bills have um, been proposed over the past couple of years. I don't think any of those have been brought back recently, and I don't feel like there's a great kind of swell of support and enthusiasm for carbon pricing right now. It, I mean, you've probably seen the stories, but if you look at where the Biden administration seems to be focusing its interest on uh, in climate policy, they're talking about infrastructure. So we had this story sort of been running um, over the past few days about this idea of a $3 trillion or even $4 trillion infrastructure package, which would apparently have a lot of climate-related investment in it. It would be um, various kind of uh, bits of spending to reduce emissions, presumably in you know, support for renewable energy, support for power transmission, um, support, I guess, for mass transit, support for EVs and so on, all those kind of things. So um, you would... I think 
as I read between the lines of, of the administration's stance, it seems to me they're much more interested in trying to use carrots rather than sticks. They're interested in trying to encourage the US economy towards lower emissions rather than trying to um, use anything to kind of um, drive emissions down by putting a price on them. Well, I guess we will find out, certainly in the very near term with regard to the infrastructure package, but perhaps over the next couple of years uh, with regard to the possibility of a, a price on carbon. I think many people are still holding out hope whether that is warranted or not. We'll have you back on in a year when oil prices are either going to be negative again, maybe they'll be two hundred dollars a barrel. Who knows? Um, but in the meantime, thanks for thanks for joining us again, Ed. Would love that. Thanks very much indeed. Thanks for having me on. Ed Crooks is the vice chair for the Americas at Wood Mackenzie. The interchange is produced by Postscript Audio. Daniel Waldorf is our senior producer. Stephen Lacey is our executive producer. Tweet at us at, at Interchange Show or send us an email to postscriptaudio at gmail.com if you want to give us feedback. We always welcome it. Also, give us a rating, share the podcast with a friend, shout it from the rooftops, uh, whatever it takes to get this out to more folks. We appreciate that. I'm Shale Khan, and this is The Interchange. Interchange.